The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The enemy we have to face down is inflation. You can't overstate how much a short-term mindset dominates Westminster. The cost of living crisis is not going away. It's very real for people. We've got to focus very much on the things that will really bring back growth. The UK has certainly been a very strong supporter of Ukraine from the outset. We have to stay the course to make sure inflation falls all the way back to the 2% target. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Could you imagine that you were someone that on Friday said, I think I'll just switch off my phone and have a digital <laughs> detox and enjoy the sun. Imagine what you what horrors you would have had on a Sunday night switching on your phone if you worked uh, in this business. Plenty of heated times inside and outside the corridors of power. Indeed, you had Boris Johnson kicking things off with his resignation as an MP on Friday, followed by his close allies Nadine Doris and Nigel Adams. So that triggers three by-elections, which, if Rishi Sunak loses them all in a day, would be an absolute nightmare. Is this a bad news comes in threes scenario? Is this mm. the three pieces of potentially bad news? But for... actually, there was a fourth. Well, yes, if, if, you were, if you were looking a little bit further north, in fact, in Scotland, where Nicola Sturgeon, the former First Minister, was arrested as part of the investigation into the SNP's finances. Now, she was released without charge several hours after being questioned uh, and tweeted that she knows beyond doubt that she is innocent of any wrongdoing, but of course questions about what it means for the political landscape in Scotland. Exactly, because it adds to this sense that her party's imploding, which would benefit Labour. So Sunak's going to be watching not just what happens in these by-elections, but also what happens north of the border. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I think it brings to the fore, you know, that in some senses the SNP has dominated Scottish politics for so long, and indeed the economic arguments about how well they're doing, maybe that shifts... All of this, though, um, the political machinations are going to just heap more frustration onto the business leaders that I spent the last few days talking to and then uh, doing a big print piece uh, called The Big Take. You know, they want radical, thoughtful, comprehensive policies about the economic plan for Britain, an industrial strategy, please. They're not going to get one if the government's stuck in internal party politics. Yeah, Britain ad- is Britain adrift is the big question that we'll be tackling. And um, we'll hear some more of Caroline's reporting in just a moment. For now, though, let's bring in our political reporter Alex Wickham who's been to bring us up to date on the weekend's political developments and where we go from here. Alex, let's talk about the Tory party. Is this a new crisis? It is a massive crisis. The civil war goes on and on and on and Rishi Sunak is desperate to draw a line under what's happened to the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, basically since Brexit and he just can't escape it. And, you know, this is the last thing, really, that he needs to be talking about. He's always going on about his five pledges, isn't he? Well, you know, he's talking about Boris Johnson, Partygate, COVID, all of that stuff. That is not where he wants to be. Yeah, absolutely. Rishi Sunak just this morning was at London Tech Week, uh, you know, talking about how uh, we want to retain our position as one of the world's tech capitals. Okay, that doesn't sound like the Johnson kind of boosterish language, but he's trying to steer it back to the discussion about politics that doesn't seem likely at least today 
What do you think about a comeback from Boris Johnson in the future? Now, is that possible? Anything's possible. I think the last few years have shown shown us that you can never you can never write anything off. I mean, you know, certainly before the election, you know, it seems completely unlikely. It has long been the case that Rishi Sunak is likely to lead the Tories into the next election. I mean, part of the problem is an interesting point that you make because part of the problem is that as political journalists, we're being attracted to these stories about scandals and crises and, and chaos. And part of the reason for that is, you know, as you, as you wrote in the big piece, there's, there's not many big ideas from the government that, that are interesting enough and radical enough and bold enough to get us talking about them. You know, he does an event about AI. I've, I must have read thousands of words of what Rishi Sunak says about AI. And, and it's the same 50 words, you know, time and time again with, with very little detail on it. And the, the same applies to other, to, to other areas. So, you know, again, Again, the narrative, he just can't control it. He, whatever he tries to talk about, some, something that he wants to, to talk about, he loses control of the narrative. And the problem for Sunak is there is a year, a year and a half to an election. If this is what keeps cropping up again, you know, the voters will clearly be sick of it. I know you're privy to the Tory WhatsApp groups. What's the flavour of the messages being exchanged at the moment? Well, a lot of it is, please can everyone shut up stop stop talking to journalists stop spouting off stop giving spicy anonymous source quotes to people please carry on uh, i would say alex please please yeah. don't please yes. do carry on um, but and, i mean my favorite is them uh, booting out the resigning mps from the from the tour, from the official tory mp whatsapp group as it's like a bunch of teenagers the way they do it it's, it's very funny no no longer no longer in the group um <laughs> I'm glad you called them teenagers <laughs> and not me. I will leave that to our political um, reporter to say that. OK, so that's that's the flavour of it then. But in terms of, you know, what we take away from the resignations, um, Nadine Doris and Nigel Slater, you know, how how difficult is this going to be? Three by-elections yeah. in the summer, you know. Rishi Sunak wanted this summer to be, you know, inflation starting to come down maybe. Maybe I'm starting to get on grips on, on the NHS backlog or the boats are maybe not going as, uh, crossing as much as they used to be. That's what Rishi Sunak wants to be talking about. Instead, he's talking about by-elections. But have they actually resigned to make trouble for Sunak or is it just that Nadine's bitter about not being in the Lords? I mean, it's probably a little bit of both, isn't it? And, you know, this is the problem is, was there a way for Rishi Sunak to try and manage this? Could he and his advisors have come up with a more politically adept way of trying to solve this problem? A little backroom deal, something that was not particularly pleasant for, didn't look particularly good, but it just made this problem go away. That is what politics is all about. And instead, he's lost control of the situation. You know, he's, we've heard him talk about at this, at this Tech Week event, talking about how, you know, Boris Johnson asked me to do something I didn't want to do. I didn't think it was right. And in terms of, you know, trying to trying to fix these peerages for his allies. So he's taking the moral high ground. He obviously thinks that voters will say good for him. He's taken the moral high ground. Well, maybe maybe he's right. But if he's not right and this just keeps coming back and the enemies or the, you know, the continual civil war that, that, that is the result of the last few days, if that continues to happen, it will be, you know, be seen as a, as a poor political calculation, potentially. So it's still, it still remains to be seen which way this goes for him. What happens to the, the Boris supporters that are left now? You know, are they declawed by these resignations or is this, are they perhaps biding their time for something else? I think one thing that is clear from 
last few days, weeks, months, is that you know, Boris Johnson doesn't have a massive constituency of MPs in the, in the House of Commons to support him. If he if he did, he probably wouldn't have, have left Parliament. So that you know, one of the reasons why he's he's gone is obviously that he doesn't have that that big group of support left. Um, you know. The, the reality is, you, you know, as we can tell from his resignation letter with the for now, leaving for now bit, you know, there is always a, a hope in terms of him that, that, you know, that might change in the future. And yet, of course, the Sunak uh, attempts at a kind of managerial type of politics kind of run into realpolitik. Uh, look, in terms of um, Labour, I just want to kind of wedge in a question about that because this, again, is very, very big. The, the, the sudden change of fortunes for the SNP over the past few months, it does really think that there could be a recalculation. You know, when you look at all of the, um, what are they, sophologists who kind of count the data... Labour could be in for a much better chance if if the SNP are really in trouble. Absolutely. This really was a seismic week in politics ahead of the next election for multiple reasons. The Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak civil war factor, yes. But Nicola Sturgeon, uh, you know, being arrested, the continual sort of crisis for the SNP gives Labour this opportunity to make inroads in Scotland, to win back some seats. That gives them a path to a a majority and and potentially a big majority. So this is absolutely huge for the next election. And then you throw in another another uh, issue that happened on Friday, which was Labour sort of finessing its its green transition policy and getting rid of this twenty eight billion pound a year commitment every single year of the next Parliament and just slightly pushing that back and scaling it da- scaling it back. You know, this all of this is about Labour f- keeping its eyes on the prize, basically seeing this part of victory, trying to close off problems and take advantage of their enemies' problems. And everything's aligning for Starmer at the moment. Last question, yes or no? Starmer wants a general election faster. Will he get it? No, because if you're a Tory and you look at the polls, there's no way you're voting for an election right now. Alex Wickham, our senior political correspondent, thanks for being with us. So amid this political uncertainty in the UK, a growing number of business leaders are left wondering, is Britain adrift. Caroline, you've been speaking to several of them about this theme. What have they been telling you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We did a kind of deep dive into the state of the British economy because in the last few weeks and months, there's just been this chorus of criticism. um, And it's really the intersection of politics, business and economics, right? Where we love to find ourselves. Yeah, it's it's us. Happy place. Yeah, happy place. But it's kind of miserable because the the chorus is negative. um, That the government is not pursuing the right policies, the right execution, as Alex says, doesn't have a big enough vision. Think of James Dyson calling Sunak's policies stupid and short-sighted, or criticism from Stellantis, uh, Revolut, Microsoft's Brad Smith. These are big names in business. So, Rishi Sunak's five pledges, which is all are all about the economy, you know, haven't been enough. Neither of the Chancellor's Edinburgh reforms. So, I I did go to see Archie Norman, who's the chairman of Marks and Spencer. He's also of course, a lifelong Conservative himself, a former MP. I met him at MS's head office in Paddington and I asked him what he thinks of the government right now, whether he thinks the UK is adrift. I think there's a huge appetite for a new agenda, for a sense of where are we trying to compete in the world? What is our strategy? Post-Brexit, it's no good just saying we left and we're going to have some trade agreements. It's how are we now going to compete in the world? You know, we've created this dislocation. We've created frictionful trade. You no, know, rightly or wrongly, that's what people voted to do. 
Now we need a plan for how we compete. And it used to be called industrial strategy. Now, this government, for whatever reason, has an aversion to the expression industrial strategy. It's what everybody else calls it, so they can't bring themselves to say it. But I don't care whether it's a growth strategy or competitiveness. It's got to be a profound point of view as to how Britain's going to compete. So, uh, yeah, as he says, Archie Norman, he doesn't care what you call it as long as it is a big thought. And he had quite a number of other interesting points to make. So government has such a big footprint in the economy, he says, that you simply cannot ignore these issues. That's kind of one sometimes conservative argument. On skills, the government's agnostic, doesn't know what skills it wants people to have. He's scathing of policy blunders like the price cap on essential foods, says that's harebrained. Uh, he also talks about Biden's um, green um, green subsidies, saying this is seismic. You simply can't ignore it. Uh, and he talks about the fact that the UK has slightly lost the plot in getting firms to list in London and also base themselves in London. I thought that was an interesting point. It's not just about listing on the yeah. stock market here. It's about having your headquarters, your knowledge base in Britain. Okay, but this is one voice out of many in the business community. And yet we know that the business lobby groups are battling it out to replace the CBI as the overall voice of British business. But you've been speaking to one of the groups that's been in that battle. Absolutely. So it's the British Chambers of Commerce. They're obviously trying to supersede the CBI, you know, with all of its woes we've reported on and we know. So this is Martha Lane Fox, who's now the president of the BCC. Yeah, probably Britain's best known tech entrepreneur herself she travels up and down the country she says also the government has to focus on policy across a breadth of sectors has to focus on increasing trade from British businesses Um, she talks about the moment domestically in the UK like this there's also a sort of holding of collective breath waiting to see what happens over the next 18 months with political situation, not just here in the UK, but in the US and more broadly, I guess, across Europe. And that's a confidence piece to a large degree. So I think we have to be careful not to talk ourselves into a position where we're saying that the UK is all at sea, to use your words, you know, adrift. That's appropriate language in some ways, but in other ways it really isn't. I think the UK has a huge amount to offer. We have a lot of extraordinary businesses, an amazing talent pool. And we have to be careful, I think, not to talk ourselves into a dark spot because that's not the UK that I think I recognise and that I think we will want to build. So Martha Lane Fox there. I mean, obviously, as a business leader, she's not someone who wants to be pessimistic. And in fact, none of the people that um, I speak to, you know, who are involved in UK business want to be pessimistic. They're hopeful about universities, innovation, entrepreneurs, but they are really deeply troubled. Lane Fox talked about a people's crisis and how there just can't be this constant rotation and chaos in her words for business you'd have to be an optimist to start a business that's what they always say to me because otherwise you'd have to be crazy with all the risk involved but i think the fact that there is this this pessimism is important and and noteworthy and it's it kind of speaks to the fact that we are at this pivotal moment where policy solutions are needed. Yeah, they are, but they're really difficult because these are often quite long-standing or very long-standing issues and they're very hard to solve. I mean, when I was speaking to Martha Lane Fox, the bit where it broke out into laughter 
was when I mentioned to her that it had been quite a chaotic pe- time period. <laughs> Queen of understatements, Carolyn Hepker. Yeah, well, that's why she sort of she laughed out loud when I said it to her um, and said, you know, that that was being quite charitable. Uh, but also the issues about, you know, the, the economics being so difficult to resolve. Xavier Rolli, who is um, was the CEO of the London Stock Exchange, so really deeply involved in the kind of finance, how you finance businesses in the UK. He's now non-executive chairman at Shaw Capital. He's someone with such deep experience, and he's saying that he's really uh, frustrated that there isn't a more serious conversation about um, how you grow businesses in the UK, also in Europe. He, he obviously is France-based now, but he was saying that you can't have kind of just debt-focused um, businesses of bank lending uh, being the driver for economic growth. You have to look to equity as the US does. So he talks about radical reform being needed. Have a listen to his argument. If you have equity markets that are one-tenth the size of the uh, US, the cost of raising equity here, particularly for a high growth industry, cost is much higher here. So the best, fastest growing, biggest value creators move to the United States. And then we end up with that productivity deficit. Over time, you end up with a low growth, low productivity, debt-focused funding environment, and the best of what you've invested in your universities, your entrepreneurs and others migrates. The US are leveraging that, but in the US, business runs business. Investors make the choices as to who are going to be the winners on the technology side. In the UK and Europe, it is still today government. You know, these talks of sovereign funds and all sorts of initiatives, government driven, eliminate the regulation that prevents the long-term holders of capital insurance companies and pension fund from investing in equities and let investors make the choices. You'll see what happens. We could grow our equity beyond part of the United States. With these changes, we could grow the liquidity of our equity markets in the UK by tenfold. So that was Xavier Rouli there, the former CEO of the LSE. So let's come back to the big question where we started. Is Britain adrift? Well, uh, the pessimists perhaps would think so, that the economic issues are again being superseded by the politics, um, you know, internal politics of the Tories. On the other hand, this could be a moment ripe for big ideas, well thought out long term strategy. But, you know, that's quite difficult to come up with, which sort of brings me back to Archie Norman. Um, as he told me, the only FTSE 100 boss to have been elected as an MP, probably the last, he said. Um he is able to speak on both the economics, the politics, and also weave through the particularly British qualities, I think, that come out of this story. I think there's a huge appetite for a new agenda, for a sense of where are we trying to compete in the world? What is our strategy? No, post-Brexit, it's no good just saying we left it, and we're going to have some trade agreements. It's how are we now going to compete in the world? You know, we've created this dislocation in how we used to. You can see it most acutely in things like the auto industry. We've created frictionful trade. No, rightly or wrongly, that's what people voted to do. Now we need a plan for how we compete. And that's popularly called, it used to be called industrial strategy. Now, this government, for whatever reason, has an aversion to the expression industrial strategy. It's what everybody else calls it, so they can't bring themselves to say it. But I don't care whether it's a growth strategy or competitiveness. It's got to be a profound point of view as to how Britain is going to compete. The government is sort of trying to address this idea of attractiveness. The UK is 
Are the hunt reforms, are any of the things that you've seen out of government profound, as you say? Uh, look, I, I just don't, I think one speech doesn't make a strategy. An industrial strategy is has to be profound. And it's not just about our attitude to where we want to compete. What It's about what skills do we want to have? Don't forget, government plays a very big part in creating skills. You know, the education sector is nationalized. We have something called the apprenticeship levy, which is a tax on skills and a tax on training. Most of that tax, a large part of that tax, is taken by the Treasury and not respent. Other countries are saying, no, we need laboratory assistance. No, we need more coders. No, we need more data scientists. We seem to be agnostic. We, we don't know what we need. And that's not good enough. The footprint of government is too big in the economy to say we're just hands off. No, we let the market decide because government does create and shape the future direction. A competitive economy is one where the public and private sector work together. That doesn't mean in an old-fashioned sense of taxpayers' money going into owning companies or anything like that. It means we're working together on re regulation, on trade, on investment in skills, on uh, you know, how government supports entrepreneurs, how we shape the tax system. At the moment, that's come slightly adrift post-Brexit. The IPO market in London has basically dried up. There's an issue around pension funds about whether or not they are allowed or are willing or able to invest enough into UK yeah. businesses. And there have been various proposals. Lord Lyons, for example, the City of London, Lord Mayor was speaking to me about his £50 billion fund that he wants to try to put money into UK businesses. I suppose, what is your thought on actually trying to make UK capital markets as attractive as they possibly can be? Because that's very fundamental to our success. Uh, absolutely. And uh, look, companies listing in London is not the be-all end of the world. But what, what we did have was uh, London was a place where people wanted to list and as a result, headquarters were based. And headquarters bring with them a lot of knowledge capital, a lot of inward investment in people. And then they support the financial markets. If you're headquartered in London, you're like to raise money in London. So competing as a place where companies want to list and base themselves is a natural thing for the UK to do and to set out to do. And we've slightly lost the plot. Now, some of it's to do with Brexit. I mean, I'm not uh, just because that creates an atmospheric feel for people. But some of it also do with the risk aversion, the, the amount of regulation we're imposing on UK listed companies, the amount of onerous reporting requirements. Now, I'm not saying it's all well intended. It's just, you know, the Marks and Spencer annual report is now 260 pages long and next year it'll be 300 pages long. And no, unfortunately, an awful lot of that is not actually read by investors. So we just got to think about these things, um, you know, that, Governance, the more and more governance we require, the more regulation we apply on people, all well intended. It may be that if other countries are not doing that, then you'll lose listings. We've got to think about that. You mentioned the pension. I think the pensions industry is a national tragedy. That we have this huge swathe of funds that over the last 20 years we've spent de-risking by regulation. So pension trustees have no incentive to get a great return for their investors. Is anyone in government listening or are we already in transition of power mode? I mean, these issues around pension funds and around creating growth, is there really 
a government listening or no look i i think what's happened here is is that rishi sunak has, has arrived in 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 a sort of semi-crisis, you know, both the convulsion of the, in the economy and financial markets of the Liz Trust era. So their focus has been, let's create some stability and let's fix some real here and now problems. That is five objectives, um, uh, which I think I can roughly remember. A anyway, the, 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 uh, I think that was fine at the beginning, but it's not fine for the future. And my advice to this government is if you want to be re-elected, you've got to be the future, not the past, to coin a phrase. You can't be the fag end of 13 years of conservative rule. And Rishi Sunak is a very different prime minister with a very good grasp of detail, a propensity to analyse and understand things in depth. He's very receptive to these ideas, but there's come a point where you have to set out why your real break with the past and competition for Labour. And I think that point is near. So that was Archie Norman, the chairman of Marks and Spencer and former government advisor, um, finishing up that series of conversations, Caroline, that you had. Do you come away with any optimism from this? Yeah, absolutely I do. Um, and, you know, it's, it's true that we're also not probably going to see a recession maybe this year. There is a great deal of pessimism about the UK. It's an unloved market. And yet there is so much intellectual property, so much dynamism in Britain. I really don't think you can write the UK off and no business person that I ever speak to in Britain does either. What about you, Lizzie? I think that it's reassuring that you've got um, more sensible, stable government now. And yes, there are political and fiscal constraints on anyone who would try to lead Britain. But it does seem that the intentions are in the right place. Yeah, and plenty more on that story to come as well. Well, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain. I'm Caroline Hepke. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.